York. This is Democracy Now! Egypt, like us, is a stalwart believer in the negotiated two-state solution. Um, the only path to a lasting resolution of the conflict and, critically, equal measures of democracy, opportunity, and dignity for Israelis and Palestinians. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken's arrived in Israel, will then head to the West Bank as violence escalates in the region. Israel's killed at least 35 Palestinians since the beginning of January. On Friday, a Palestinian man shot dead seven people at a synagogue in an Israeli settlement in occupied East Jerusalem. Israeli settlers carried out scores of attacks over the weekend. We'll speak with Columbia professor Rashid Khalidi and the Israeli journalist and activist Orly Noy. Then protests continue in Memphis and across the country after the release of police body cam footage showing the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols, an unarmed 29-year-old black man who was pulled over in a traffic stop next to his home. We want equal justice under the law. Tyree deserved it. Tamir Rice deserved it. Ronald Green deserved it. Alton Sterling deserved it. Eric Gardner deserved it. Pamela Turner deserved it. All our children. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Tensions between Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories are reaching a boiling point following a spate of recent attacks, which have escalated since Israeli forces raided the Jenin refugee camp in the West Bank Thursday, killing 10 people, including two children. On Friday, a gunman killed seven people near a Jerusalem synagogue at the start of the Jewish Sabbath. Over the weekend, Israelis living in illegal settlements in the West Bank carried out scores of attacks on Palestinians. At least four Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces since the Jenin attack, bringing the total number of Palestinians killed by Israelis since the start of the year to 35, eight of them children. On Saturday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he'll expedite gun permits for Israeli citizens. This is the Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir. I want weapons on the streets. I want Israeli citizens to be able to protect themselves. We saw this in today's attack near the city of David. If people have weapons, they will protect themselves. Meanwhile, another protest brought tens of thousands of Israelis to the streets of Tel Aviv this weekend to call out the mounting violence and attempts by the new far-right coalition government to diminish judicial powers. What we are trying to tell this government is that the need for democracy, the need for peace, the need, the need for prosperity should be the backbone of what we are here for. And that's what we should strive for, a democratic state that strives for peace. This all comes as Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem today during an official visit to the region. He's scheduled to meet with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah on Tuesday. Blinken already met with the Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Cairo during the first leg of his Middle East trip. Blinken says he stressed human rights during his talks with Egyptian officials. Egypt is a major recipient of U.S. military funding despite its brutal suppression of dissent and the press, including the widespread jailing of political prisoners. 
Iran says it foiled an Israeli drone attack on a military facility in the western city of Isfahan. Unnamed U.S. officials confirmed the reports, though the Israeli military did not comment on the attack. It would be the first such strike under the new extreme right government. In Pakistan, at least 34 people were killed and 150 others wounded after a suicide bomber attacked a mosque earlier today in the city of Peshawar. Part of the building collapsed as the bomb ripped through the mosque during noon prayers. Authorities fear people may still be trapped in the rubble. The mosque is located inside a high-security compound that includes government buildings, the city's police headquarters, and counterterrorism department. This comes after government forces and the Pakistani Taliban ended their ceasefire in November. No one's claimed responsibility for the attack, which was the worst since last March, when a suicide bombing at a Shiite Muslim mosque killed at least 58 people. The Islamic State claimed responsibility for that attack. A warning to our audience, this headline contains graphic descriptions of police violence. The Memphis Police Department said Saturday it's disbanding its Scorpion unit in the wake of the brutal police killing of Tyree Nichols. The announcement came one day after the police department released the video of Nichols' murder, showing five officers relentlessly beating the 29-year-old just blocks from his home. The officers, who now face murder charges, pepper sprayed, tased, kicked and beat Nichols while shouting threats and a series of commands. Nichols died three days later of kidney failure and cardiac arrest. Medics failed to administer assistance to Nichols for at least 15 minutes after they arrived on the scene. Two EMTs have been suspended pending an investigation. Nichols' stepfather has called for the paramedics to face criminal charges, calling them just as guilty. Protesters took to the streets of Memphis and other cities across the country following the video's release. In Memphis, organizers welcomed the disbanding of the Scorpion unit, but said much more is needed. This is Amber Sherman of the Memphis chapter of Black Lives Matter. The multi-level gang unit, the organized crime unit, all work under the same umbrella as the Scorpion unit, and they need to all be disbanded as well. Because just by ending that unit, that's a good move. But then you still have these same task force who are doing that same terrorism, assaulting people, over-criminalizing uh, the poor and black, the poor and um, low-income neighborhoods, mostly where black people live, because we are a majority black city. To see our interview uh, with Amber Sherman, go to democracynow.org. Tyree's murder has prompted fresh demands for Congress to pass police reform legislation. Ben Crump, the lawyer for the Nichols family, called for passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which remains stalled in the Senate after the House approved it in 2021. The Congressional Black Caucus is pressing to meet with President Biden this week, who also voiced support for enacting the legislation. Many activists continue to call for a greater institutional overhaul, arguing the inherently racist police system in the United States is beyond reform. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. 
Ukraine says Russian strikes on the southern city of Kherson have killed three people and injured six others. Those attacks followed a Russian air raid on an apartment complex in the northeastern city of Kharkiv, where at least one person was killed and three others injured. Separately, Russia said a Ukrainian strike in the Russian-occupied Luhansk region hit a hospital on Saturday, killing at least 14 people and injuring two dozen. Russia's foreign ministry blamed U.S. made HIMARS rockets for the deaths and accused the United States of direct involvement in the conflict. On Saturday, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, asked allies to send long-range missiles and other high-tech weapons, saying Ukraine's military needs to counter Russian attacks far from the front lines. Russia hopes to drag out the war and exhaust our forces. So we have to make time our weapon. We have to accelerate developments. We have to speed up the supply and launch of new necessary military options for Ukraine. In response, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz ruled out sending German fighter jets to Ukraine, warning allies against entering a bidding war to supply weapons. Scholz's comments came just days after Germany agreed to supply Ukraine with Leopard 2 battle tanks. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has blamed Syria's army for killing 43 people and sickening dozens of others in a chemical weapons attack on the rebel-held city of Douma in 2018. In a new report, OPCW investigators say a Syrian army helicopter dropped two yellow cylinders containing toxic chlorine gas on two apartment buildings in a civilian inhabited area of Douma. The U.S. bombed Syria days after the alleged attack. Syria's foreign ministry said it totally rejects the OPCW report and has accused rescue workers with the White Helmets organization of staging the attack at the behest of the United States. In 2019, two former OPCW employees leaked internal documents revealing there were conflicting views within the organization about what actually happened in Duma, leading some observers to conclude that the chemical attack might have been staged by Syrian rebels. In Tunisia, voters made their preferences known largely through their absence during weekend parliamentary runoff elections. Just 11 percent of eligible Tunisians cast ballots Sunday as anger mounts against President Kais Saied, who last year consolidated his power after winning a constitutional referendum boycotted by most opposition parties. Opponents have accused Saied of carrying out a legislative coup. This is Najib Chebbi, head of Tunisia's main opposition coalition. About 90 percent of the Tunisian people turned their back on these elections and once again said they do not participate in this coup, which does not concern them in anything, and thus expresses disappointment and lack of confidence in the path that was launched with the coup of July 25, 2021. In the Maldives, former President Mohamed Nasheed has been defeated in his primary election to challenge the incumbent President Ibrahim Mohamed Saleh. Elections officials say Saleh won with 61 percent of the vote, though Nasheed has alleged fraud and has so far refused to concede defeat. Mohamed Nasheed is a longtime climate advocate who, in 2008, was elected president in the first multi-party elections held in the Maldives, a low-lying island nation in the Indian Ocean, after he was 
was overthrown in a 2012 coup d'état. Nasheed survived imprisonment and exile before his return to the Maldives in 2018, where he now serves as Speaker of the Maldives Parliament. Brazil's government has declared a public health emergency in the Anamami community as severe malnutrition and illness ravaged the nation's largest indigenous territory, home to some 30,000 people in the Amazon. The crisis is largely due to the disastrous effects of illegal gold mining, which has displaced people, devastated the land, and contaminated rivers with mercury. The current president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, and other officials have accused former presidential Jair Bolsonaro of committing genocide by propping up miners and neglecting calls to help the Yanomami. This is a Yanomami leader. The Yanomami people, for four years, we have only been crying, the community mourning, sick children, and for many times we asked for help, and it didn't come. Back in the United States, Utah has become the first state in 2023 to ban potentially life-saving, gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Republican Governor Spencer Cox signed the bill into law Saturday as Republican lawmakers in Utah and other states push forward more bills targeting transgender rights, including a measure that would bar minors from changing the sex listed on their birth certificates. The ACLU's Chase Strangio responded, quote, claims of protecting our most vulnerable with these laws ring hollow when lawmakers have trans children's greatest protectors, their parents, providers, and the youth themselves pleading in front of them not to cut them off from their care, he said. In Los Angeles, three people were killed and four others injured in a shooting at a short-term rental home near Beverly Hills early Saturday. It's the sixth mass shooting in California in less than two weeks. Nationwide, there have been 49 mass shootings since the start of the year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. President Biden is calling for an assault weapons ban. And in Washington, D.C., a federal judge has sentenced the man who pepper-sprayed the late Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick during the January 6th insurrection to 80 months in prison. Sicknick died of a stroke one day after the riot. Julian Cater, who pepper-sprayed three officers that day, had pleaded guilty to the charges. Another man, George Tanios, who traveled to D.C. with Cater and supplied the pepper spray, was sentenced to time served. Some 950 people have been charged in connection with the January 6th insurrection. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has landed in Israel, will then head to the West Bank as violence escalates in the region. We'll speak with Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi and the Israeli journalist and activist Orly Noy. Stay with us.
Elevation by television. Guitarist and singer Tom Verlaine passed away at the age of 73. The influential guitarist once remarked, when I think of influence, I think of influenza, like somebody's picked up a germ. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has arrived in Israel as violence escalates in the region. Blinken's expected to meet with both Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and then-Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. Israel's killed at least 35 Palestinians since the beginning of the year. The dead include eight children. The deadliest incident occurred on Thursday, when Israeli forces raided the Janin refugee camp in the West Bank, killing 10 people, including two children. It was the deadliest Israeli raid in the West Bank in two decades. A day later, a Palestinian gunman shot dead seven people at a synagogue in an Israeli settlement in occupied East Jerusalem. The shooting targeted worshippers observing the Sabbath. The New York Times says it was the deadliest attack on civilians in Jerusalem since 2008. After the attack, Israel's new national security minister, the far-right politician Itamar Ben-Gavir, vowed to make it easier for Israelis to carry guns. Over the weekend, Israelis living in illegal settlements in the West Bank carried out scores of attacks on Palestinians. One Palestinian official decried the settler violence, saying it marked a, quote, unprecedented increase in the frequency of terror attacks against Palestinian citizens and their property. We're joined now by two guests. Rashid Khalidi is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the author of several books, including his latest, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. He's joining us from Boston today. And in Jerusalem, we're joined by Orly Noy, an Israeli political activist and editor of the Hebrew-language news site Local Call. She's also the chair of B'Tselem's executive board, the Israeli Human Rights Group. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Professor Rashid Khalidi, why don't we begin with you? Can you talk about this escalation of violence? Go back to Thursday, what happened in Janine. Of course, I know you can go back further and then take it from there. Well, there's been a wave of um, Israeli military attacks in the West Bank, um, largely focused on Janine but also including Nebdas and other, other localities all over the West Bank. Uh, last year, saw the highest number of fatalities in the West Bank um, over, in over 15 years. And this year, that, that record looks to be broken. Uh, we have over 30 people killed in the West Bank, um, about a, a half of them women, children, and other, other civilians, and some of them uh, uh, armed militants. Uh, so this is, this is part of an escalation that's been going on even before this new extreme Israeli government took office. And I think it reflects uh, the intensity of the, of the colonization and, 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 and more intense uh, Israeli control that's being exerted over the West Bank and occupied Arab East Jerusalem. Um, it, it's the response of people to an absolutely intolerable situation, the violence that we're seeing. And then the Israeli government responds with further home demolitions, uh, settlers respond with further attacks on Palestinian lives and property. So we are seeing a, a situation that has been growing in intensity and, and, and in, in which the, the Israeli process of taking over, stealing land, taking it over for exclusive use by settlers, 
has pushed the Palestinians very close to the brink. Where this is going to go, nobody can say. But the pressure that's being put on and the absence of any reaction from the international community, the Arab world, um, is terrifying because nothing seems to be able to stop uh, what this move to, to, to completely incorporate the entire occupied of the, the entirety of the occupied territories into Israel. And after the Janine attack, and let's remember that the well-known, the world-renowned Palestinian-American journalist, journalist Shireen Abu Akla, uh, was killed right outside the Janine refugee camp as the Israeli forces were engaging in raids. Um, talk about what happened the next day. Talk about the Palestinian gunmen, the attack on the synagogue. And interestingly, the difference between—I mean, all of this is terrorizing and communities. But um, how, when the word terror is used and terrorist, oh. Professor Halliday. Yeah, I lost the sound there for a minute. I, I, think you, I think what you're pointing to is the fact that the much more massive number of Palestinian casualties, most of them civilians, uh, are never recognized as the result of Israeli terror, whether it's settler, ter settler violence or whether it's the actions of the Israeli military or the border guards of the police. Um, we are talking about a three to one, four to one, five to one ratio of civilian deaths. Uh, many, many more Palestinians killed. We are only told that what the Palestinians do is, quote unquote, terror. What the Israeli government does is in service of, quote unquote, security. And again, this term security is one that is used as a bludgeon by Israel to justify not just the murder of civilians, not just attacks on, on localities like the Janine refugee camp or the town of Janine or the city of Nevis, but to justify the uh, continued appropriation, expropriation, theft of Palestinian land for the building of exclusive Israeli, Israeli, new Israeli settlements. All of this is justified in terms of security. What it is, is colonization. Israel is, is systematically colonizing occupied Arab East Jerusalem and the rest of the occupied West Bank. And in so doing, it is employing terror, terror wielded by Israeli settlers, armed Israeli thugs, and by the Israeli military, which invariably protects the settlers. Um, and, and so we, we are talking about use of a term as a bludgeon against the Palestinians in, in support uh, of, this, of this colonization uh, process, one which the United States constantly repeats. Um, we had President Biden talking about uh, the attack on the, on the worshippers outside the synagogue as an attack on civilization. This is the language of colonizers throughout history, uh, in Ireland, in Kenya, uh, in India, in Egypt. Uh, anything that's done by the occupied, by the colonized to resist is terrorism. What the state does is legal violence. And that's the way in which this is always being framed by Israel and by its supporters in the United States, including the U.S. government under President Biden. And Orly Noy, you're in Jerusalem, not that far from where the attack took place. The Palestinian gunman um, killed seven Palestinians after the Janine-Israeli um, uh, raid the day before. Uh, talk about what happened there and about the mass protests this weekend. Um, yeah, I, uh, hi, Amy. I just want to um, uh, point out that uh, the shooting uh, in the 
uh, Jewish settlement of Neve Yaakov in East Jerusalem did not occur in a synagogue. It uh, occurred in a, a street where there happens to be, like many streets, uh, a synagogue and the, the Shabbat prayer had been long gone, long finished by the time of uh, the shooting. Uh, also, uh, uh, with regard, referring to your question about uh, terrorism, it is important to uh, mention that the shooter's grandfather uh, was uh, murdered by a Jewish settler in 1999, ne which and uh, he was never brought to justice. And his second cousin, a 17-year-old boy, was shot dead recently in the uh, uh, in the Shoafat refugee camp while he was holding a toy gun. And later, Itamar Ben-Gvir actually granted the shooter, the policeman who sh shot dead, this 17-year-old boy uh, with uh, the certification of excellence. Um, the protests uh, uh, are not directly related to this new cycle of violence that we've been witnessing, but of course it's very much related to the uprise of uh, the most uh, radical far-right government with clear fascist elements that we have right now uh, in Israel. Um, I think that there is a general notion within the Jewish-Israeli society that something very dramatic happened, but I think that we are still not seeing the soul-searching that this radical shift was supposed to bring about. Um, uh, following the, the general discourse in Israel, you might uh, get the impression that... Uh, an unidentified object from the sky just suddenly hit the so-called Jewish and democratic state and shifted it from its course, bringing us uh, to the current uh, situation, um, which is, of course, not the case. Uh, I, I think what we are seeing now, the, the rise of uh, the fascist uh, right in the government, um, is a very natural result, outcome, uh, of the most fundamental nature of uh, Zionism as it has been implemented in the so-called Jewish and democratic uh, state. Uh, um, if you take uh, the last mass demonstration, for example, and the last Saturday after the shooting, if, when you have an ex-general standing on the stage uh, admitting that uh, the Supreme Court is the only shield protecting him from being, uh, 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 from uh, bringing him to justice uh, in the ICC. Uh, so there is a different understanding of what do Israeli Jews mean by when they say we are demonstrating now to protect democracy. Uh, unfortunately, it is uh, still Illinois, not if you can democracy. Go, if if you can step back for one minute, for people who aren't following the politics of Israel that closely, when you talk about these mass protests against Netanyahu's um, intervention in the Supreme Court, take it from there. Explain what you mean and what they are protesting about. 
Um, this new government, uh, again, with clear fascist, undemocratic elements, uh, has a very clear agenda in crushing uh, all the obstacles, the, uh, the remains of the obstacles that still uh, uh, give Israel some pretense of democracy. Those include free journalism, the, uh, uh, free expression, uh, 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 expression of speech, um, and of course uh, the judicial system, uh, which uh, they see as a leftist elite, which of course is very far from true. Uh, all the uh, Israeli crimes in the West Bank uh, have been approved by the Israeli Supreme Court, and very rarely did the uh, court inter uh, interfere uh, with uh, any uh, to, in order to stop any of those crimes. Uh, but right now the attack is on um, the democracy that the Jewish population has been enjoying uh, in Israel. And they want to eliminate uh, those expressions of, of uh, freedom uh, in order to dictate a very radical far-right agenda. You also mentioned Itamar Ben-Gavir, the national security minister who awarded the soldier who killed the Palestinian. Um, he himself, right, was convicted uh, in Israel of inciting racism and hatred against Palestinians or Israeli Arabs. He was actually indicted with being a part of a terrorist organization, which is quite ironic because one of the main articles on their agenda is to um, uh, exclude the Palestinian Knesset members from the parliament on, uh, because of so-called being supporters of terrorism. But actually, the only parliament member right now in the Israeli Knesset uh, that was indicted uh, with supporting a terrorist organization is Itamar Ben-Gvir himself. Professor Rashid Khalidi, as we speak, um, Secretary of State Tony Blinken has just left Egypt, where he met with President Sisi and arrived in Tel Aviv. He'll be meeting with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, and then tomorrow he'll be meeting um, with uh, Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. Can you talk about the significance of this trip? Well, um, Blinken is coming to pump more formaldehyde into the decaying corpse of uh, the so-called two-state solution. Um, this is, and also to continue the, uh, the 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 maintenance of the status quo, which seems to be the objective of every American administration to allow Israel to continue to do whatever it does to the Palestinians, while occasionally poo-pooing certain excesses. Um, there has been very little change uh, from the uh, time that the Biden administration came into office in the core policies of the U.S. government, whether that had to do with arming Israel to continue its occupation and colonization of Palestinian land um, to the tune of $3.8 billion every year in, in military uh, sales and military aid to Israel, uh, or um, endorsement of the Trump administration's uh, movement of the uh, U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital or recognition of the uh, annexation by Israel, uh, illegal annexation by Israel of the occupied Golan Heights. None of these Trump-era policies have been changed. And um, 
Blinken's long planned trip uh, is essentially intended to further uh, American policies, which also include normalization between a state that is systematically brutalizing Arabs with other Arab governments, most of them undemocratic um, and unrepresentative of popular feeling in the Arab world, which is intensely pro-Palestinian. So Blinken's stated objectives are to maintain the status quo and to push uh, this normalization process. And can you also talk about what's happening right now to the Palestinian gunmen's home, Um, this whole idea of collective punishment? They are sealing it off. Explain what takes place. Well, what Israel does is to systematically punish uh, uh, not just the perpetrators of attacks, but the sometimes the extended families of perpetrators of attacks. Uh, This kind of collective punishment uh, is part uh, of a process of trying to crush the spirit of Palestinian society. You don't just uh, put the perpetrator of an attack in jail. You interrogate and brutalize and torture members of the family, and then you just seal off and ultimately destroy their home. Um, This is part of a policy of demolition of Palestinian homes that takes place all over occupied Arab East Jerusalem, uh, that takes place all over the occupied West Bank, and in particular in the 60% of the West Bank that forms the so-called Area C under the Oslo Accords. There, Israel systematically destroys homes that are built without permits, permits which are absolutely unattainable. My brother had the foundations of a house destroyed uh, near Jericho in Area C simply because they didn't have a permit. You can't get permits. So it's a, it's a catch-22 situation. It's intended to uh, ultimately humiliate and, and, and punish Palestinian society. Um, and the demolition of the homes of, of, of perpetrators of attacks is just the peak uh, of a, a, a process of systematic demolition of homes uh, all over occupied Arab East Jerusalem and the West Bank. You had a piece recently in The New York Times, uh, Rashid, uh, headlined, Will the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem be built on confiscated Palestinian land? Explain. The United States has submitted um, plans for the building of an embassy on a plot called the Allenby Barracks. Um, This was land that was originally a British military facility rented from Palestinian landowners and from Palestinian pious foundations, Um, Al-Qaf. The the owners of this property, back when this plan was originally floated in the 1990s, uh, put together research that showed the Palestinian ownership of this land, uh, sent it to the U.S. administration, which at the time, uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and her and her uh, staff acknowledged um, that this was the case, and the plan the plan was shelved. Um, the Trump administration uh, reactivated this plan, and the Biden administration has gone forward with it. Uh, today, uh, the District Planning Commission is looking into the objections, including those filed by lawyers for the families against this on the grounds that this is Palestinian-owned property. Um, this is something that has been put to the State Department. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, and the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Thomas Knights, were sent letters uh, by lawyers for these families. They include my family uh, and many, many other Jerusalem families, uh, including many people who are U.S. citizens, s- telling the U.S. government that it is about to build or planning to build uh, on property owned by Palestinians, illegally confiscated by Israel, um, including the property of U.S. citizens. 
Uh, we have yet to have the families and the lawyers for these families have yet to get a response from the State Department. Well, let me play the response of uh, State Department spokesperson Ned Price, who was asked about uh, whether he'd read your New York Times op-ed. I did see it, and I appreciate the opportunity to comment on it, primarily because there has been some uh, misinformation or some misimpressions about uh, our plans. To be very clear, uh, we have not decided on which site to pursue. A number of factors, including the history of the various sites that uh, are in contention, uh, will be part of that very site selection process. We are committed, as you know, Saeed, to keeping the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. The United States recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital. We're currently considering two options for our future embassy facility in Jerusalem. Uh, one is the Allenby uh, site, and the second is the Arnona site. Uh, but again, no decision has been made on site selection. Uh, in accordance with Israeli law, we started the process to amend uh, the town plan for both potential locations. The public con uh, comment period for the Allenby site remains open. Uh, we also expect to advance the plan for the Arnona site shortly. Uh, with a separate comments period to open soon. Uh, the reason there is a comments period uh, is so that we can uh, garner a fuller sense uh, of public reaction, public response uh, to sites that may be in contention. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. Uh, Professor Halliday, your response. State Department received full information on the Allenby site uh, in 1998, 25 years ago. Um, and while they may well be studying uh, what to do, uh, they know perfectly well that if they go ahead with the Allenby site, they will be building on the land that it belongs to a number of Palestinians, including many American citizens. Um, there are two sites, it's correct, but the plan submitted by the U.S. government to the District Planning Commission, the comment period ends today, actually, uh, includes plans for an embassy on the Allenby site. It includes plans for other buildings on the so-called Arnona site. Um, so we, we, will, we will see. Um, the lawyers for the families will be holding a, 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 a panel to discuss this actually tomorrow. Um, and uh, we hope that uh, people will, will tell their congresspeople, will tell the State Department, tell the U.S. government that it should not be building uh, on, on uh, confiscated Palestinian land, uh, including land that belongs to U.S. citizens. And more broadly, that this move of the embassy to Jerusalem and this recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital only, uh, in effect, is yet another uh, a nail in the coffin of the so-called two-state solution. Uh, Israel's annexation of, of occupied Arab East Jerusalem, illegal under international law, and, and in fact, which the United States opposed at the time, um, is one of the major problems between Palestinians and Israelis. Once again, the United States puts its big thumb on the scales in favor of the colonizer, uh, as against the victim, the Palestinians, in moving its embassy to Jerusalem. That's the larger question, uh, as well as the question of why is the United States government recognizing illegal Israeli uh, uh, expropriations of private property of U.S. citizens? Where the private property of U.S. citizens is concerned elsewhere, the U.S. government is normally vigilant in protecting that. Um, this doesn't seem to be the case where Palestinian Americans are concerned. Um, obviously, the bigger issue is Jerusalem. Uh, and moving the embassy and recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And 
finally, Orly Noy, we just have a minute, but if you can talk about the escalating level of settler violence um, in the West Bank, the Palestinian news agency Wafa reported there was 144 settler attacks on Palestinians Saturday alone. And also, what is understood by Israeli society? Yeah, um, I think uh, uh, very briefly we should mention that uh, 2022 has been the deadliest year uh, uh, for the Palestinians in the West Bank, 100, uh, over 150 uh, casualties, and this is under the so-called change go Israeli government, not the current uh, extreme far-right uh, government. Um, yes, in the, uh, uh, this is something that uh, occurs. I mean, settler violence is, uh, uh, um, uh, is an ongoing thing on a daily basis in the West Bank. But after such events like the shooting uh, Friday night, they tend to escalate very severely. I'll just mention that in the village of Tormusaya in the West Bank, settlers, and this is documented on camera, uh, 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 set fire to a house which uh, by chance was not inhabited by, by uh, the family at the moment, uh, uprooting trees, attacking uh, Palestinian farmers. Um, the, the, the Israeli public in general has no idea because the mainstream media does not cover it, which, which creates the reality in which um, uh, Israeli and also to a, a great extent uh, international um, uh, public discourse only speak about violence in our area when Jewish Israelis are being targeted. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being with us. Israeli Noy, uh, <coughs> Orly Noy is an Israeli Jewish political activist and editor of the Hebrew language news site Local Call. She's the chair of the board of B'Tselem, the Israeli human rights organization. And Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University. We will continue to cover this as, uh, um, of course. Next up, protests for police accountability continue in Memphis and across the country after the release of the police. Police body cam footage showing the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols, the unarmed 29-year-old black man pulled over in a traffic stop, beaten right next to his home, dying three days later in the hospital. Stay with us. Dallas by Ad Nasdam. The sound served as the soundtrack for Tyree Nichols' skateboard practicing video, which our television audience just saw. Others can see it at democracynow.org. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A warning, this segment contains disturbing descriptions and video of police violence. The Memphis Police Department said Saturday it's disbanding its Scorpion unit in the wake of the brutal police killing of Tyree Nichols. Scorpion's an acronym for 
street crimes operation to restore peace in our neighborhoods. The announcement came a day after the police department released the widely anticipated video Friday night of Tyree's murder, showing five officers relentlessly beating the 29-year-old African-American man just 80 feet from his home after they stopped him for an alleged traffic violation on January 7th. The officers, who now face murder charges, pepper sprayed, tased, kicked and beat Nichols while shouting threats and curses and a series of commands. Nichols died three days later of kidney failure and cardiac arrest. Police edited the videos before releasing them. The footage comes from the officers' body cameras and from a surveillance camera on a nearby pole. In the first video, officers pull Tyree from his car and push him to the ground. We had to beep that a lot, and none of those curses uh, were Tyree. He was saying, you are doing a lot right now, of course, to him. The officer who wore the body camera then tased Tyree Nichols, who tried to get away, then tackled by at least five officers who then beat him severely with their fists, batons, and kicked him repeatedly. Footage then shows Tyree in clear medical distress as the officers stand around out of breath and complain about their own injuries. One says Nichols appears to be, quote, on something as Nichols lays bloodied on the ground. When an officer tries to prop up Nichols against the car, the camera shows him and his bloodied face. It's not clear if he's conscious. Bro, my hurt all no, day, but when I seen that boy running, bro, I'm sorry, no more, bro. Yes, bro. Bro, I'm not, bro. Bro, that's hot. Come on, come down here. Hey, sit up, bro. Sit up, man. The newly released footage shows medics failing to administer assistance to Tyree for at least 15 minutes. After they arrive on the scene, two AMTs have been suspended pending investigation. Tyree's stepfather has called for the paramedics to face critical, uh, criminal charges, calling them just as guilty. Protesters took to the streets of Memphis and other cities around the country following the video's release. On Friday, Democracy Now! spoke to uh, the lawyer, Ben Crump, and the mother and stepfather of Tyree Nichols shortly after um, the stepdad— saw the footage. The mom said she can't watch it. This is Rodney Wills, Tyree's stepfather, and attorney Ben Crump describing what they saw. What I saw was the police brutalizing my son. Um, they didn't have to do that. Uh, he didn't deserve that. Uh, he was a very, very good kid, and I didn't uh, understand why they had to beat him the way that they did. Uh, it was just very, very horrific. I'm glad my wife didn't see it because she didn't deserve to see that either. Uh, it was just troubling. Tyree was just a few blocks from his home? No, 
he was a few houses from the home. He was about 80 feet from his house. And uh, it makes sense why his last words on this earth is he's yelling out for his mother, gut-wrenching cries for his mother. Now, when this video is released, um, it will be shown. And I'm asking you for direction now, the two of you, Rodney and Rovon Wells. Do you want us to show it, the video of your son's, uh, of the beating of your son? Uh, yes, we do want you to show the video, but at that same respect, we want protesters to do it peacefully. We don't need riots or looting. That's not going to bring our son back. That's not what he stood for. He's a peaceful person, and we're a peaceful family. Uh, so if you want to riot, just protest. I mean, if you want to protest, just protest peacefully. So that's Tyree's stepfather, Rodney Wills, and his lawyer, uh, the family's lawyer, Ben Crump, speaking Friday on Democracy Now! You can see the whole interview there. And as well, we spoke to Tyree's mother, Rovon Wills. Four-year-old son, tell us more about who he was, um, about his skateboarding prowess, um, working at FedEx, coming home for lunch uh, each day to you. Just talk about how you want us to remember him. I want you to remember Tyree. Tyree was—he was different. Tyree didn't follow everyone. He was his own leader. Um, he had a beautiful soul, and he touched everyone. The boy smiled all the time. He loved his mother's cooking. He loved his son. That's why he came to Memphis in the first place, to be with his mom, build a better life, for him and his son. But Memphis took my son away from me. Oh, I have nothing. Tyree had a tattoo of you on his arm? He had my name, on a tattoo of my name on his arm. Tyree's parents spoke to President Biden over the weekend, said they plan to join new calls for Congress to pass police reform legislation. Uh, Crump also calling for the passage of the George Floyd just Justice and Policing Act, which remains stalled in the Senate after the House approved it in 2021. The Congressional Black Caucus is pressing to meet with President Biden this week, who also voiced support for enacting the legislation. Many activists continue to call for a greater institutional overhaul, arguing that the inherently racist police system in the U.S. is beyond reform. We're joined by two guests. D. Ray McKesson is a civil rights activist, co-founder and executive director of Campaign Zero. Also with us is Larry Hamm, chair of the People's Organization for Progress, which is based in New Jersey. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Larry, when you first saw the video and heard the story of what happened to Tyree, your response—I mean, your organization and you—have um, worked on the issue of police brutality not for weeks or months or years, for decades. You ran uh, for Senate, uh, essentially, on that platform against police brutality. Well, Amy, it's good to be with you uh, today. Uh, after seeing uh, the video, I was, I was 
very hurt emotionally. I was crushed. What those officers did uh, was abominable. It was heinous. It was hateful. And uh, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Essentially, what they did was an act of domestic terrorism under color of law. And it just reaffirmed for myself and members of the People's Organization for Progress, and I think for activists around the issue of police brutality uh, across the country, that policing um, in this country must be totally, totally restructured, uh, reorganized, because uh, right now, since George Floyd, the police haven't learned any lessons. The number of deaths uh, from police shootings has actually risen. 1,176 deaths last year, the highest number of any year since they started counting. What we need, we need civilian oversight of the police, we need community control of the police, and we need laws in place that make it clear to the police that they will suffer consequences when they commit these heinous acts of police brutality. They can lose their uh, uh, license, their badge, their gun, their job, and possibly lose their freedom. We have to eliminate qualified immunity, and we have to put in place uh, um, laws that will make it clear to the police that they will suffer the consequences. That's why these things continue to happen. The police act with impunity because they know there's only a 99, there's only a 1% chance that they may actually get in trouble, uh, uh, suffer some serious consequences for doing these kinds of things. And D. Ray McKesson, if you can explain qualified immunity and then talk about um, what's happened now in Memphis, the disbanding of the street crimes unit. In New York, I remember, of course, after Amadou Diallo, they disbanded the street crimes unit. There it's called Scorpion. Um, but— you have pointed out that the things they've said they've done, uh, your eight-can't-wait campaign, um, they have, in fact, not. Yeah, so I'll start with QI. Remember, there are three ways that we can hold officers accountable. It, there is criminal, so charge them with the crime. That's a conviction. There is administrative, so that is terminate them from the force that's firing somebody. And then there's civil which is going to mostly be monetary damages. Qualified immunity is civil only. So we're always confused when people talk about holding individual police officers accountable because in most places across the country, when you sue an employee for their actions that are done at the job, you actually are suing the employer. So if an employee at McDonald's throws a coffee on you and you sue the employee, you're actually suing McDonald's because they assume liability for all the actions of their employees at work. What's interesting about Memphis is that for the last 30 years, they actually have not assumed liability for the officers in the Memphis Police Department. It's actually one of the only big cities in America where they don't have any, it's called indemnification, but where they don't assume liability. So there are tons of people who have been harmed by the police in Memphis who really can't sue the police department for damages. They'd have to sue the individual officer as a citizen. And as you know, what happens is those citizens, police officers, they will just file for bankruptcy and you'll never be able to file a civil claim. In Memphis, you actually have to sue the city itself directly. And that is a much harder legal journey to take. So we anticipate that the city will settle with uh, 
Tyree's family before a lawsuit's even filed just because of the enormity of the press around it. But there are a host of other people victimized by this police department, and they refuse to assume liability for the wrongdoing of the officers. And to the other question about structural things, you know, Memphis, the police use of force policy is just a really bad one. So in terms of requiring de-escalation, they don't. What they would say is that they require training on de-escalation. Not the same thing. There was a law that passed in 2021 that we helped write that did make a duty to intervene the law in Tennessee, but that's really the only thing that they've done structurally. So I'm hoping that the Tennessee legislature uses this moment to really restrict the power of the police. I'm hoping the Memphis City Council and the Memphis Police Department immediately make the use of force policy better. Uh, and the other thing is that in Memphis, in the police union contract, uh, it says that you have a one-year window from the moment that a police officer commits a harm to hold that officer accountable. So if if an officer like beats somebody and a year passes, even if you prove that they beat somebody, it is impossible because of the contract to discipline that officer after a year. That's a random, arbitrary deadline. It's one of the things that we track in cities across the country. And the Memphis City Council tomorrow can make that obsolete. Larry Ham, today you're holding a news conference about the New Jersey state grand jury's decision last week not to indict the police detective Rod Simpkins in the fatal shooting of an unarmed black man named Carl Dorsey, New Year's Day 2021 in Newark, New Jersey. The investigation into his death has dragged out, even though his family says the facts are clear. They say he was shot dead by the officer Simpkins, who was undercover, unmarked car, minivan, plain clothes when he arrived at the scene after reportedly hearing gunshots shots. Within seconds of exiting his car, Simpkins fired the gun at Dorsey. Uh, uh, Even unclear if he first announced himself as a police officer. Can you talk about why you're holding this news conference today? Yes, Amy, thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, we have Tyree—what happened to Tyree Nichols happens every day in America to a black person somewhere. Every community has a Tyree Nichols. And one of the Tyree Nichols in New Jersey is Carl Dorsey. Carl Dorsey was unarmed. This is an indisputable fact. Uh, No one disputes the fact that Carl Dorsey was unarmed when he was shot and killed at near point-blank range by Detective Rod Simpkins of the Newark Police Department. Uh, In New Jersey, we have this independent prosecutor bill where if a police If a local police person kills someone, then the state attorney general must take over that investigation. The state attorney general had this case for two years, and we didn't hear anything publicly. And then this week, almost on the same day that the officers that killed Tyree Nichols uh, uh, were charged, that day the grand jury came back with no bill, no indictment uh, for the officer that killed Carl Dorsey. So today at 11 a.m., together with the family members of Carl Dorsey, their attorney, Robert Tarver, we're going to have a press conference at 11 a.m. in front of the Rodino Federal Building in Newark, 970 Broad Street in Newark, New Jersey, to demand that the U.S. attorney, the United States attorney for the District of New Jersey, Philip Selinger, launch a... 
launch a civil rights investigation into the death of Carl Dorsey. Well, Larry Hamm, chair of the People's Organization for Progress, and D. Ray McKesson, civil rights activist, executive director of Campaign Zero. Thank you so much. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.